what about yourself then? Because look, you know, you're wearing a black t-shirt and I see you posting a lot of things about like buying very elaborate pieces. They're extremely, you know, fashion oriented yep. stuff. And sometimes they're clearly sort of like a dress or something. Yes. And here yes. you are wearing, you know, a t-shirt. Yeah. So what's your personal relationship to fashion then? What's the sort of a day-to-day -day Alex Fury outfits? This is what I wear every day. You know, I will sometimes wear something slightly more exciting. I should have worn something more exciting. I know that I will be challenged. On the one hand, a lot of people have been like, why do you wear this when you go to fashion shows, for instance? And my thing of that is it's, it's not about me. You're not supposed to be looking at me. You shouldn't care what I'm wearing. Hi, and welcome to the Live Curiously podcast from Joyce. I'm David Helquist, a UK-based writer and art director. I've worked with Joyce on various projects over the years. And for this one, I'm talking to the editor, author and critic Alex Fury. I first met Alex a few years ago on the fashion show circuit. He was probably fashion director at Show Studio at the time and I was editing Days Digital. Most likely it would have been at a sun-drenched Prosecco event at Pitti in Florence. Anyway, good times. Since then, Alex has gone on to work with a wide range of titles. Everything from biannuals such as Love and Another Magazine to newspapers like The Independent and Financial Times. His past and present jobs with US titles are pretty decent too. Men's critique at American Vogue and chief fashion correspondent at T Magazine. It's this varied experience, online to print, mags to papers, UK to US, etc., that makes Alex's point of view on fashion and the surrounding media relevant to anyone working in the industry today, as well as curious bystanders and observers. Hey Alex, welcome to the podcast. Hi David, thank you very much for having me today. My pleasure. Yeah, it's been a while since I saw you now in person, as with uh, most people. So, you know, if nothing else, be a good opportunity just to sort of start at the beginning and, and talk a little bit about like how you came into this industry, the fashion media industry, but also just really, you know, your personal background. Like I've known you for quite some time, but I don't actually know where you're from and, <laughs> and how did you end up coming to London and, and doing what you do? Well, I grew up about an hour outside of Manchester in the middle of nowhere. The place I grew up in, I think on the last census, had a population of 112 people. And I lived there until I was 20, 21. And originally I wanted to actually be a fashion designer. And I went and did a foundation course at Manchester Metropolitan University. And then in the course of doing that, I realised I didn't want to be a fashion designer. So that kind of threw me off course a little bit because it's what I'd wanted to do since I was 11. Um, mm. And then I um, I went and worked in a bank for two years just to make money and to figure out what I did want to do. And then off the back of that, I came to London to study at St. Martin's, which is what I always wanted to do. But I studied fashion history and theory as opposed to design. And during that whole time, I I carried on working in banking. It's how I paid my way through university, which was slightly strange uh, for everyone there. And actually, my first year in the industry, I was still working for Coots because when I started um, working at Show Studio, which is the, the fashion website founded by Nick Knight, and at that point, 
edited by Penny Martin, who's now at The Gentlewoman. I was supposed to be a temporary employee and I stayed for nearly five years. But during the first year of me at Show Studio, I was still working at the bank. But that's kind of the backstory. And I think it's interesting because when I talk with a lot of designers, at some point, a lot of them will ask me what I studied. British designer Anthony Price said to me, you know how clothes are made. What have you done? Because they can tell when they're talking to me that I do understand how, at least not to an incredibly complex degree, but I do have an understanding of how clothes are constructed. And I think that for me is massively valuable. It is, I suppose, just knowing like how it actually works. I mean, it's same but different. Like for me, I worked a lot in retail, yeah, uh, in fashion retail, yeah. you know, Brown Stowe Street, etc. And to me, it's the same thing where you have a sort of an, an understanding of the industry. Cause yes. Retail is kind of where it all sort of happens. Like that's where the brands, the designers sell stuff. And you have to understand that element of the industry because it helps with everything else. And so I hear what you're saying. But if you go back a little bit, you know, that jump from wanting to study uh, fashion design and mm. to more kind of like academic aspect of it, like how did you take that step? What turned you in that direction? I think I was really lucky that I grew up in Britain in the 1990s because it was an amazing time for British design. Because it was this point when McQueen had emerged um, and when Galliano was going to couture houses in Paris and then when McQueen followed him, you also had Vivian Westwood. Um, fashion, for, for kind of the first time in, in Britain, was news. You know, it used to be on the news and it used to be on the front page of newspapers, certainly for the first time that I can remember. And not only was it the exposure to what these designers were doing, but also what they were doing was so grounded in history and so grounded in past fashion that it was an amazing learning experience because you would watch a TV show about John Galliano and it would talk about him referencing Charles Frederick Worth or Charles James Ballgowns or Madeleine Viennet's bias cut. And when it talked about those things, as somebody who was curious and interested in it, then you could go off and read about these things. I find it a very rich experience because it wasn't just about what you were seeing in front of you. It was sending you into lots of different directions of research um, and kind of investigation. But when I got to my foundation course, I think I realised I didn't want to be a fashion designer. I wanted to be John Galliano and that wasn't going to happen. It was at that point that I realised it's not that I'm super interested in creating something of my own. It's actually just that I really love what he's doing and what other people are doing. You know, one of my earliest kind of obsessions that isn't in that British trifecta of creative geniuses was Azadine Alaya. The structure of Azadine's clothes, the way he cut. There's a certain kind of similarity in that there's this kind of obsession with detail and with technique and with construction, which I certainly feel Azadine shares with John, with Alexander McQueen, and also with Vivian Westwood, who she showed her first two collections in Paris in Azadine's showroom because there's such a kind of affinity between what they do. But ultimately, I think I was more interested in what people were doing as opposed to feeling that I wanted to do something myself. Um, it was almost like I wanted to make their clothes to figure out how they made them. So you sort of, you, you made that leap into becoming more of an observer, a commentator, rather than actually making yourself. But I'm also thinking about today, you're a writer. So obviously you swapped your tools, as it were, and it wasn't the sewing machine, it was the writing that became your way of communicating. Well, the thing that's actually interesting about that is I always wrote, 
I would say writing was what came to me very naturally. And in a really weird way, you hear about these designers who have this kind of absolute natural affinity for doing things. And I didn't have that at all. But actually what I did used to do was when I reached my foundation course, I used to write everything down. I used to write very kind of elaborate descriptions. Like if you've ever read couture descriptions in 80s issues of Vogue, where they, you know, say where all the fabrics are from and what all the fabric is. And, you know, even some of them say for a credit, the perfume that the model was wearing. I used to write all of those things to kind of go with the clothes that I was designing. It had been kind of exaggerated to the fact that there would be this incredibly complicated description in writing. And then I would make something and there was no sketch. And then at the end, you know, I was told I had to sketch something So I would do a still life of the finished dress. Like I would draw the dress at the end when it was made. So it was always through writing. There was even stuff, um, I was talking about this the other week, which is interesting, that I would write kind of reviews. I would write reviews of my own fake fashion shows as a like 13 year old. And I would be really horrible. I would say, you know, that, you know. Oh, you'd be harsh. uh, Yeah, I'd say I didn't have a grasp on daywear. Because at that point, I already loved reading newspapers and the difference between newspapers and fashion magazines was very evident. The fact that a fashion magazine wrote about fashion in a certain way and a newspaper wrote about it in a very critical way, which was something that I was interested in. Mm. So I was reading kind of Colin McDowell in the Sunday Times. I was reading, you know, Lisa Armstrong, Susanna Frankel, later on Susie Menkes, because, you know, to a kid, the International Herald Tribune was very expensive to buy. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was reading all of those newspaper journalists. And also at that point, you know, in terms of fashion magazines, I was really only reading the big ones. I was reading, you know, Vogue in Britain, what was then Harper's and Queen magazine instead of Harper's Bazaar. Tackler. Um, I read Elle. My mum used to buy Marie Claire. And that was actually when I first saw fashion in Marie Claire magazine, because in the kind of late 90s Marie Claire was very fashion conscious you know Mm -hmm. of the kind of women's magazines for want of a better term because my mum used to buy things like Cosmopolitan and New Woman but Marie Claire was the fashion one Marie Claire was the one that had pictures of high fashion they shot high fashion as opposed to Cosmo so you know I was looking at those I wasn't really looking at style titles but the thing that's interesting I actually still have those old issues of Vogue You know, I always remember that they did some quite amazing things. There was a season where they sent Ruby Wax to review the couture. And you read it now and it's you kind of can't believe British Vogue published it. It's Ruby Wax saying that everything looked horrendous and someone had to come in and burn her wardrobe and tell her what to wear. You know, she's a comedian. She's making fun of the clothes, but not in a really horrible way. There's obviously, you know, she has this kind of relationship to fashion. I will always remember that because I absolutely loved that article and it was shot with a couture portfolio. You know, so I was... I was very interested at that point in writing about fashion and in writing about fashion in kind of different, unusual ways and very much drawn to to fashion writing in newspapers. It sounds a little bit like that sense of detail focus Mm. combined with your writing quite naturally took you in in the direction to where you are right now, right? Like your way of writing, I mean, Mm. which is very founded or based on that aspect of fashion, I feel. I think, and also history, you know, I can't exaggerate the fact that it was really, you know, it was really amazing to look at these clothes and then for people to talk about the historical references and then for you to go and read about the people that they were referencing. I don't think people maybe talk about fashion history in the same kind of way, because then it was very much talking about 
quite a distant past. Yeah. And especially when you look at something like, you know, Vivian Westwood and she was talking about fossils and crinolines and 14th century quilted coats that you wore under armour. And then when you went back and looked at all of that stuff, you kind of fall in love with it. And that's because I was reading it when I was 13 and 14. I was reading history books about fashion. I was reading Madame Bovary because, again, it, you know, fandom, because Vivian Westwood talked about it. I went and read it. And it's interesting because fashion was kind of this tool for me, this tool that really opened up this world of culture. Because I, I, maybe I'm, I'm stereotyping or, you know, maybe I'm, I'm making generalisations, but in the rural north of England, it's not open to those kind of things, you know. No, it's you know. often the other way around, isn't it? That you use sort of culture to get through to fashion mm, as opposed mm. to... But I think it's know. also interesting, actually, when thinking about Vivian Westwood, she grew up in the north of England, quite close to where I grew up. She didn't know there were art galleries, that they existed until she moved to London. And yeah. it was kind of the same for me, you know. I knew they existed, but they weren't there. I, you know, I didn't go to them. Yeah. My parents didn't take me there. It wasn't kind of a thing that we did. Um, yeah. Also, of course, when you're talking about any fashion from earlier than the 18th century, the clothes don't exist. So as soon as you're talking about Tudor fashion or Tudor court costume or anything like that, you're looking at paintings, it becomes an art history exercise. It is amazing when you look at the clothes in old paintings the amount of detail that people paint in, you can see things where people have sort of rolled down the hose on their legs or where people have slipped an arm out of the sleeve and they've painted all of these details in. I found that really fascinating to go back and look at these things because it, these clothes don't exist anymore. This is yeah. the only record we have of them. I think that, you know, that's one of the aspects of your work that also makes you different from most writers out there to have that historical perspective and to sort of like always go back and reference those things you know a lot of people might know a little bit about like collections and fashions of the last 10 15 20 years mm. but to be able to go further back in history than that and to make those connections it's only really like a handful of writers who are able to do that and I think also in, you know in this day and age where everyone's a writer everyone's a photographer everyone's a critic everyone has an opinion to be able to kind of like go one step further that is you know how you sort of stand out amongst everyone else just to move on, you mentioned Show Studio. You started yes. there in yeah. 2007, eight. Uh, 2007, yes. 2007. Yes. Show Studio is a website. You know, at that time, were you sort of secretly wishing that it actually been a print publication or were you happy to go into digital fashion media? Because at the time, 2007, that was not a big thing. Going to Show Studio was interesting because I'd worked for a fashion designer before that. I'd interned with Marius Schwab, who's now based in Athens and at that point was one of this kind of young, really innovative generation of London designers emerging at that point. And it was actually him that said, I think you should go and work with Show Studio. He'd done some projects with them. He said he loved Penny and that what they were doing was really interesting and was really innovative. Before I went to work for Marius, I'd applied to lots of different things in terms of internships. I'd written to Lulu Kennedy at Fashion East and she's the one I remember because Lulu brought me in and spoke with me afterwards which was really great but then when I went to work at Show Studio you know it, it was something completely different first of all it was a very unusual environment it was physically a very unusual environment at that point it was based in East London below the studio of Peter Saville who'd worked with Nick when Show Studio was founded 
and you walked through a kind of mirrored room that Nick had created for a photo shoot, but in the show studio office, you walked through this kind of strange mirrored entrance. And, you know, it, it was people that were working in very unusual ways. As a team, we were present on a lot of Nick's shoots. We were doing editorials based around Nick's photographic shoots for advertising campaigns and for magazines, kind of documenting them, creating content around those, you know, also kind of covering fashion shows, doing fashion film projects at a very early point in time. So it was really about all these different things kind of coming together. You know, they had a blog, which was quite early on for an established publication to have a fashion blog. They did a lot with camera phones very early on. You know, this was obviously pre-iPhone, so the, the picture and video quality was um, rudimentary, to say the least. In 2009, 2010, there was the exhibition at Somerset House, which was Show Studio Fashion Revolution. And we were also working towards that as well. So it was a very interesting thing. But, you know, when I started, I went on my first photo shoot and my first photo shoot ever was Nick Knight shooting Kate Moss for V magazine. And it mm. was like a photo shoot out of a film. You know, it was in a vast space that Nick always shoots in where they normally shoot car adverts. You know, I don't know if he still shoots there. This was a long time ago. But he always shot in this particular studio at Park Royal Studios. Val Garland was doing the makeup and Sam McKnight was doing the hair. And Sam McKnight had a wind machine and they were playing the kinks and he was blowing Kate's hair. And I was like, this is like a film. This is like watching, you know, Blow Up or something. This is absolutely amazing. It's exactly like what I thought it was going to be like. And that's because I was lucky. And in retrospect, I realised a lot of people kind of start at this level. And, you know, when I started right up there, I started at the top. And also just being able to kind of be there and see that and experience it. And that was actually the first time I met Nick. I was going to ask you what the advantages might be of working for such a small independent publication, but I think you just basically answered that question. Well, that's it. It's, it's You got the chance to do things there that you never got the chance to do because of the nature of the beast. You know, it was all of a sudden, within six months of me starting there, you know, I'd done that shoot with Kate Moss. I'd covered the collections in London and in Paris alongside Penny. I'd gone to my first Galliano show and... We did a, th a thing called Fashion DJs, which was like three days of live radio sponsored by Swarovski with different performers, with Nick videoing. It, so it, it is an extraordinary platform. And I think now the idea of a fashion publication, live broadcasting three days of, you know, music content isn't as kind of outrageous as it was back then. You know, when it was at Abbey Road Studios it was broadcast on radio. There was a radio frequency that it was broadcast on, which is still really weird. Yeah. But I think the idea of a fashion publication pulling together different musical people to perform and talk about music doesn't seem as kind of outré as it did in 2008. No, but it's all about context, isn't it? Because mm. again, as I said before, that's very early in fashion media being a sort of a digital voice. And you're right, like what Show Studio was able to do because of its size... It's incredible. And the fact that it wasn't owned by, you know, a huge American publishing house it gave it that ability to do those things. But a couple of years after you started at Show Studio, I went to Dazed. I was editing the Dazed digital websites and, you know, we were doing show reports and 
I mean, now, you know, mags don't do that because they've moved on. Yeah, and, but, that's, but that's the nature yeah. of the beast, isn't it? Especially when you work digital, you're kind of meant to, you're sort of expected to be constantly changing and trying new things and evolving. And again, that's the point with show studios that they have the sort of the ability to do that because no one was expecting them to do anything else but that. And that's a beautiful thing to have, I suppose. You know, the last thing we worked on together, the last thing I worked on with Nick was the first ever you know, and I think you can say it's the first ever fashion shoot via Instagram. It was very interesting because Nick became obsessed with Instagram quite early on. This was 2012, so quite early. And Nick had an Instagram account when big figures didn't really have Instagram accounts. And he did a fashion shoot based on what people liked on Instagram, which now sounds really I don't want to say dumb, but now it sounds really obvious. You know, of course you do a shoot around what people like on Instagram. But back then it was this idea, you know, I was slightly resistant to it because I was like, do you really want to be this populist? You know, is it really about what, mm. what people are clicking and liking? So what it ended up being was Cara Delevingne, who at that point had, I think, 100,000 Instagram followers. But, you know, she was a model with a lot of followers on Instagram. That was super early in her career as well. I think before she'd even done her first show season. Then it was nails, because people still really like kind of nail art on Instagram. And at that point they did as well. And kind of cute animals. So it was Cara yeah. Delevingne and jewellery, fine jewellery, which I think might have been me bringing something in and being like, well, if we're doing hands, then we should do fine jewellery. So, you know, it was her in Valentino Haute Couture, with crazy nails by the manicurist Marion Newman, wearing Fabergé fine jewellery and holding a kitten. Or her holding ducklings in Merica Transu and Van Cleef and Arpels. And I have, when I left, Nick very nicely gave me one of those pictures and I have it on my wall in my living room. An Instagram picture kind of blown up to sort of 50 centimetres square. There's also, when you think back to that time, Everything had to be square formatted, which is very different to a magazine page. And Nick was posting the images onto Instagram as he was shooting them. You know, he was shooting them, putting mm. a filter on them, putting them straight up. Which, for an image maker of Nick's calibre to be doing that, at that point in time, even now it's a bit kind of, it's a bit strange. Yeah. So, as I said, I was, I was quite resistant to it at that point. And now I look back at it and I'm like, I can't believe I wasn't a million percent into this because I really should have been. I suppose that's one of Nick's strengths is that he's able to look into these things right, that might not be what a photographer of, of his stature does, but sort of to push those boundaries and ask yeah. those questions. It's about creating a, a dialogue where you, it's a two-way street. But and then after that, after leaving Show Studio, you did a fairly brief stint as, yes. as editing Love Magazine under Katie Grant. You know, was that maybe perhaps a bit of a dream job? editing a, a proper fashion it was, I mean, when, magazine. You know, obviously I was in fashion. I was going to shows and, you know, but as I think I've kind of emphasised, Show Studio was a really kind of idiosyncratic creation. And at that point, I'd never worked on a print publication. So it was interesting to go in and work on a print publication because you learn a lot of, you know, you learn a lot of jargon, you learn the language of print, which I still remember going in and people talking about DPS and me not knowing what that means, which is a double page spread, and talking about front of book and well, and, you know, all these kind of, these sort of legacy terms, I guess. And I went in and I had no idea what anyone was talking about, which was very kind of off-putting. But really, when I went in, it was the magazine, the autumn-winter 2012 issue of Love was kind of already half done. 
So I went in at quite an interesting time where a lot of the work had already been done. And, and so you really had to hit the ground running because this magazine was kind of pulling together. But it was interesting because it was a different world to me. I'd written for, for magazines, I'd written for newspapers, but I'd never actually physically worked within the structures of that. And that was amazing. And also, I think when you think about love or pop under Katie or now Perfect Magazine, it's very much this kind of encapsulation of what's going on at a particular moment. Um, I mean, you know, the other thing with Show Studio yeah. that I probably should say is people really didn't understand it for a long time. And there was a very weird point where all of a sudden people started to live stream fashion shows. And it was that spring 2010 season when McQueen live streamed Plato's Atlantis. But before that, I remember being in Milan and it going from fashion shows not wanting to give us a ticket and often not giving us a ticket to all of a sudden every fashion house had a kind of digital team and the digital yeah. team all wanted to meet me and talk about what we did. Yeah. I remember a day starting, but at the same time, you're talking about yeah. getting all these emails from, from brands saying, look, do you want to live stream our, yeah. our show? And it became, obviously, after a while, it just kind of escalated. And then obviously you had that kind of like the political element to yeah. it. Yeah. Where yeah. people were sort yeah. of, you know, kind of not asking, but expecting us to do those things. And to sort of, I think we had a kind of like no show rule. So we, yeah. didn't, we didn't do yeah. any of them. It's funny, isn't it? Because like what fashion is about trends, arguably, but like there's there's trends within trends, isn't it? Yeah. Somehow like at that yeah. time, that was very much part of a trend in fashion media because the world was developing and that was the sort of phase we were in where like we now had the ability to do those things. Didn't mean it was the right thing to do. No. And I think there's this real kind of human need for contact um, oh. that has really changed the way we view technology. Over the past 12 months, there's been, you know, real kind of seismic shifts. Certainly when people are now talking about the impact it's had on retail, for instance. You know, are we ever going to shop the same again, considering that people that have never shopped online before have started shopping online and can see the kind of benefits of it? Yeah. Another thing that strikes me is like coming from Show Studio, a digital platform, and then going to Love, which is a biannual fashion magazine. I mean, the deadlines are, you know, so enormously different. And again, yes. sitting sitting on the day's digital desk, we had another magazine next to us, you know, that's a biannual magazine. We published, I don't know, five, six stories a day. Like as a writer, there are enormously different ways of working. And it takes, I imagine, even though you were editing love but you know still that tempo changes, changes yes drastically yeah and did you sort of find out which one you kind of like you know belong to well were you were you biannual or daily i think i would like all the time in the world to write something but i'm actually i work better with a kind of daily mentality because then i mean i always say i've done my career in reverse to most people because i started digital then i went to biannual then i went to newspapers which seems like, you know, I'm kind of regressing into the 19th century yeah. in, in terms of communication method. But then when people were saying, oh, it must be so different, it must be so great going to kind of newspapers after working digitally. And I'm like, no, like newspapers are tougher because mm. with digital, you can kind of, whenever you finish it, you finish it and it gets uploaded. I'm like, with a newspaper, if it's not done by five o'clock, like there's a gap on the page, yeah. you've missed it. Exactly. Like, you know, what... Not only that, obviously digital, you can also edit. You know yes. what I mean? It's such yes. a safety mechanism is that you publish, that's not the end of it. 
Yeah, and you know, you can edit it, you can retract it, you can do, you know, whereas with newspapers, you know, if you commit to saying something, then it's there in black and white and you can say sorry, but it's, you can't pretend you didn't say it. Um, And also when I was fashion editor of The Independent, I was also fashion editor of the I newspaper, which was a kind of a condensed version of The Independent at that point and is now a standalone publication, and also of The Independent on Sunday. So unlike a lot of newspaper fashion editors, I produce content seven days a week. And, you know, today I I write for the Financial Times. I'm the men's critic for the Financial Times. So I still write for newspapers because I love writing for newspapers. They allow you a very different point of view. We're talking about spectacles before frames. I mean, you know, you're looking through the world in a very different way aren't you because also these are not publications that are you know driven by fashion no driven by and that's the thing that i really love about newspapers is i actually love being able to write in both ways because when i write at another i'm writing for a total kind of fashion connoisseur it's people that you know know it inside out you know you don't have to spell everything out for them whereas writing for the financial times I kind of see it as my job to get someone interested in fashion who would never normally read about it. It's certainly the way that I always thought about it when I wrote at The Independent. And it's something that we were all very much aware of when I was writing at T. You know, the idea that people might know absolutely nothing about it. When I was at The Independent, I always remember people kind of saying to me, oh, my mum really loves reading what you write. And for me, that was kind of the ultimate sort of compliment was someone's mother who has nothing to do with fashion was interested in this and read it and was entertained i think that's a a big thing as well is is kind of entertaining people without belittling fashion you know let's mock this let's make fun of this i think more than enough places especially newspapers think of fashion as a joke despite its kind of impact and economic might and the number of people it employs and the fact everybody has to wear something on their back unless they want to get arrested. You can't say that fashion hasn't had some kind of impact in what you're wearing, whether you like it or not. And if you went to try and put on a suit that you wore 20 years ago, it would look and feel completely wrong. Even if you could fit into it, the lapels would be wrong. The size of the collar on the shirt would be wrong. The cut of the trousers would feel wrong. I know this. I've I've tried on clothes myself from kind of 10, 15 years ago that I couldn't fit in and that I can fit in again. And this, they're wrong because even though I, you know, still feel that Phoebe Philo Celine should feel right, it actually doesn't. There's something about the proportion of the shoulder from, from 2010 that isn't quite right. And I think in a in a much subtler way, if a man was to try on a suit from 2003 versus to a suit from today, it would feel completely different and it would feel wrong. And that's kind yeah. of fashion, really. It's that really stealth shift. You're talking about a lot of people who are not, you know, able to sort of open their minds to that reality. But just going back to what you're saying about, you know, that mum reading you you at Independent. I mean, really, what you're talking about is the sort of the, the, the fundamental bit of journalism, is, which is knowing your reader, right? Like understanding yeah. who you're yeah. writing for. And it's really interesting when you've come from shows to you, come from love, going to Independent. And, and then you have these three completely different publications yeah and to sort of be able to sort of pick up like you know this is who we're talking to not the experimental avant-garde ways of of, um show studio or the glossy highbrow of of love 
but like this really fundamental like you just man off the street buying by the independent for a quid yeah you know, to read about yeah. like news and then all of a sudden there is john galliano's show from yesterday in paris uh, you know we, we touched on this before i was just wondering you know coming from those two publications you'll be forgiven to go into independent thinking that you're going to change their minds or you know educate the the readers about like what fashion really is you know did you feel like that you had sort of i'm going to make the independent less high streets and more high fashion we were talking about like how you had to sort of feature jeans that are one pair that's five quid and one that's 500 just mm. to sort of cover those bases but were you given any directions in terms of that or i'm not sure they really knew what they got when they got me because i kind of went straight in and was like this is what it's going to be like this is what i'm going to write about and people will get annoyed i will be writing about high fashion and this is what interests me this is what i feel is interesting to our readers um yeah. there's no need to talk down to people so kind of i think we did something on sort of drag style very early i'm not sure exactly how many women would want to dress like drag queens but it was entertaining it looked good on a paper but you know i i did understand that there was an accessibility i mean i feel like it was quite a different time as well you know i wonder now if people would question i hope people would question the prices that there was a lot of pressure for things to be mass and by mass things you know I mean cheap. Mm. And if you did put too many things that were too expensive, people did actually write and complain. You know, there is still this kind of lingering sense of elitism. Mm. And that's also because of the newspaper. I think there are some newspapers, for instance, um, you know, the Financial Times, there aren't questions about expense on the Financial Times. And with T Magazine, again, that things weren't questioned if jewellery was very expensive or if watches were very expensive, for instance. Whereas I think the the independent was seen much more as kind of mass. It didn't have a sense of elitism to it, which I think some newspapers do have. Mm. So I did try and be aware of that. As I keep saying, you know, I was a kid in the north of England and I wanted to read about this kind of fantasy. I think you've got that sense of reporting on fashion as news, you know, reporting mm. on fashion in terms of this is what's happened. But I was also very aware of, of me as a fashion critic, that I was writing about my opinion of these things. It wasn't just a flat reporting on what actually occurred. There was that element to it, of course, but it was also my opinion, my point of view, and just trying to entertain people. I think there's there's also that element of, you know, as a journalist, you're trying to engage people, you're trying to entertain them, you're trying to keep them interested in what you're writing about. I suppose that's when newspapers comes in because that's a brilliant platform to do those things is we yes. just connect fashion yeah. to real life what is happening around us right whereas you know fashion mags etc arguably is a bit more about aspirational ideas and dream worlds really which is sometimes not connected to reality at all i really like it when you can be more varied with a fashion magazine when you can write about things in a broader sense even things like I ended up writing something about Christian Lacroix a long time ago when the collections looked like they were all influenced by Lacroix. And what does that say about now? And, you know, what does Lacroix represent? What do his clothes represent? Why are we looking at that style? Something on the kind of influence of Yves Saint Laurent across the seasons, as well as very specific profiles of people. And when I was at T, I wrote, you know, we did a big thing when Anthony Vaccarello went to San Laurent, but it became kind of a sort of a think piece about fashion houses and about people going into fashion houses. You know, what San Laurent represents, how difficult is it to tackle that kind of legacy? 
Um, we did a thing where, ironically, given the Gucci Balenciaga pairing, we did a, a joint interview between Alessandro Michele and, and Demna when Demna first went to Balenciaga. I think we did the interview literally three hours after Demna's first show at Balenciaga. And we had like an hour together and it was Demna, Alessandro and myself. Mm. And we shot the clothes together. And that was 2016. So it's interesting that even at fashion magazines, and really T is kind of a fashion culture magazine, you know, you can bring together these kind of unexpected pairings with the most recent issue of another, you know, it was all about that. It was about bringing together different people in conversation who you wouldn't have expected to have together. So one of my favourite pairings was um, was Sterling Ruby with Dries van Noten. And that came about because I was reading a New Yorker piece where Sterling Ruby said he'd met Dries van Noten at a train station. And I was like, do you want to kind of talk again? You know, and then it became this Zoom conversation. Um, and that's another thing. Zoom and the technology that we have at the moment... And the comfort people have with this technology has made a lot of those things much more possible. We were very lucky at T that we could get Alessandro and Demna in the same room together. And we could only get them in the same room for 45 minutes because Alessandro then had to leave to fly back to Rome. But he'd been to Demna's first show, so lucky we got them together. As much as I was saying you want to keep readers enticed and, and interested and avoid kind of cliche and avoid obviousness. I think you want to do that in newspapers, but also in fashion magazines. I think, you know, a lot of people, you can't just have a load of kind of straight profiles. People are kind of used to that. Unless you can profile someone in a different way, you know, unless you can propose something that people don't feel like they've read before. I think it's important to try and keep things kind of fresh and different. Kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier on, you know, like, I mean, look, magazines, there's so many magazines and mm. they've, been, they've been around in, in this current format for so long. So sort of features have been done, right? I mean, a lot yeah. of sort of feature yeah. formats are in the past and needs refreshing. But yeah. You, you, you mentioned T Magazine. So you, you worked with a couple of American titles as well. You contributed to American Vogue. Yes. Uh, how would you then compare... So if you sort of look at the American Vogue's and T's and the publications you, you've worked with in the UK, how would you say that US and the UK differ? Um, the teams are much bigger in America. They're very kind of well-oiled machines. I don't think they have these kind of, you know, 10 people producing a magazine. There it's 50 people. You kind of asked at one point, was it a dream job? For me, writing for Vogue Runway was kind of the dream job. That's something I'd always wanted to do. From reading style.com as a kid, the power of that platform, the kind of universality of that platform was something that I was always drawn to. It's very newspaper in a sense, but it's even more egalitarian. You just type in a URL and it's there for anyone to see. So I loved that. And I will also say, you know, I'm, I'm often quite a difficult person to have on staff because I do have an opinion and I do want to express it. And I was never censored at Vogue Runway, which is extraordinary. I think Vogue Runway has a very um, unfair assumption that they heavily edit writers, that they heavily censor writers. They don't. They edit really well. They never took away the meaning of something. They never made me be positive if I wanted to be negative. Um, mm. And it, you know, it got me in trouble because it's such a big platform. But they were incredibly respectful. 
and I had a, you know, a fantastic time writing for it. And the only reason I didn't write for it was because at that point I moved from the Independent to write for the New York Times and I wasn't able to write for other US titles. And that's the only reason that I left Vogue Runway. Um, right. And I, I always like to go on record and say that because I had a fantastic time and I really loved what I did there. Um, I don't want to say they're super different because I think, at the, at, you know, at the end of the day, what everyone wants is, you know, great journalism, things that are informed, things that are lively and entertaining. I think the American titles found it very useful to have someone based in Europe so I could do kind of European stories very easily without it costing an absolute fortune. Um, that said, you know, T still sent me to Japan to interview Junya Watanabe and I landed during a typhoon, if I'm remembering correctly. But, you know, it, I didn't find it any different. The only thing that was different really was that I wasn't based in an office. And I will say during the last 12 months, the thing I found incredibly difficult is I like being in an office. I like being with people. I think working on a magazine especially is a very physical process. We do a lot of things by paper and they're done by paper because they're better done by paper. It's not some kind of archaic hanging on to a legacy way of publishing things. It's the fact that you have to write this down on a piece of paper and pass it to the next person and they have to be able to see what you've written down. And you can't yeah. do that digitally without it becoming a big mess. Um, yeah. You know, there are certain processes that probably are better to be done digitally. But I think all being in a room together working on a magazine is very important because you can converse. You know, it is a kind of community spirit. Yeah. It's a very different experience. It's much richer. Well, sometimes I feel like, you know, it's a print magazine. It needs to be put together in a physical way. There is yes. definitely a, a connection there between the two. I was just a bit interested about something you mentioned very quickly earlier on about like you know not being censored and so on mm -hmm. i think if people were to sort of describe what you do if they had to just use one word i mean they'd probably call you a critic more than anything else perhaps. yes so let's talk about that because that's a big that's a big thing to be a critic in fashion mm -hmm. uh, today yesterday tomorrow probably also it's an industry famed for not handling criticism very well yeah so yeah. first of all, why is that, do you think? And also, wh why is it important that, you know, you, others, carry on critiquing fashion? I often question if it's important, and I think that's at various levels in kind of culture, actually. When you see things like films that have 3% ratings on Rotten Tomatoes, you know, making billions of dollars at the box office, you question how much does it really matter what a film critic says about this film? Mm. And I think sometimes with fashion, you're like, how much does it really matter what I say about this? If people want to buy it, people are going to buy it. But you know, they're always going to sell it. It doesn't have the impact it used to have. No, but I suppose the difference is that it's socially acceptable for film critics to critique films. I mean, in, it happens in every single newspaper. It happens in, in online every single day. And whenever a film's out, it's, it's reviewed by countless people all over the world. Mm -hmm. But very few platforms, very few writers are allowed to do a similar job, express a similar opinion about a show or a collection. You know... Maybe I'm wrong. Don't have that strong opinions about clothes. I think a lot of, you know, a lot of people that write about fashion or a number of them don't come from a fashion background. So, you know, they end up writing about fashion in some instances. And especially on newspapers, you know, newspapers 
always, and I was very resistant to this, you know, newspapers loved sending the sports team to report on fashion. And I have a feeling that happened to me once or was suggested to me once at the Independent. And I was like, great, so shall I go and review the football? And they were like, but you know nothing about it. I'm like, yeah, they know nothing about fashion. So, you know, I've no idea of the rules of football. I've no idea why people are stood where they're stood. I don't know why their supporters sit on this side of the pitch and the other ones on that side of the pitch. Why don't they just give them all a ball so they can go home? Like, you know, so if, if, but if your football critic is going to write about fashion, how about I write about football? And that was mm. the end of that discussion. But it has become, even that thing of, I said, you know, and I, I did love it, but even that thing of sending Ruby Wax to review the couture, you send someone that has no knowledge and experience of fashion into a fashion context, and that somehow is challenging this, you know, elitist hierarchy of fashion. And, you know, someone sat in a seat where they shouldn't be sat and, you know all this kind of thing. And again, it, you know, it feeds into these, I think, very old-fashioned ideas of fashion being snobbish and fashion being a very closed industry, you know, fashion being something for a very specific group of people. I think that's changed massively over the last 20 years with the internet. You know, you suddenly see that there are all these people that are interested in fashion, but also in terms of consumption of fashion imagery. So it's all kind of blurring into pop culture, which is actually a good thing. You know, I don't think fashion should be something precious and something removed. Fashion is something everyone can relate to. And interestingly, I think that's why people get really angry about fashion. In a way, perhaps they people don't get angry about contemporary art because it's a bit like, oh, well, this is, this is art and I don't understand it. Whereas with fashion, it's like, this is something I'm supposed to put on my back and I would never wear that. Ergo, it's bad. Ergo, it has no value. It's it's not worth anything. It's stupid because I can't relate to it. People don't look at the, you know, Michelangelo's David and are like, oh, you know, that would never fit in my living room. So it's bad. Whereas people will look at something and be like, I can't wear that. So it doesn't serve a function. And in a way, I, I also understand that because there's this idea of fashion occupying this very interesting space where it's a bit like if someone designs a chair that you can't sit on, is that a bad chair? So I understand all of these different sort of ramifications. And I always put fashion into that space. Like For me, fashion occupies the space that kind of great design occupies. You know, I think of a Galliano dress or a Balenciaga ball gown in the same kind of realm as, as, as a Jean-Michel Franck room or a, a Jean Prouvé chair or something like that. It's like, here is a Le Corbusier house. These are great design. They're functional. And in a sense, they have to function because if they don't function they're not part of the beauty of them is that they function which is very different to a piece of art that is just there to be admired as an object you don't criticize a painting because i don't know it you know it doesn't fit its frame you don't criticize a painting because it doesn't coordinate with a room or something like that you know it, it, it it's a different thing I understand what you mean. I mean, it's the fact that clothes, even though they are super expensive and, you know, conceptual, people understand that this is, you know, something you meant to wear, really. And I wear stuff. So therefore, I could potentially wear this piece. But yes. it's so far removed yeah. from, from anything that it relates to my life. So then you get this kind of like tension of like, I don't understand this, you know, because it's yeah. clothes really yeah. are, are extremely pragmatic. Yeah. Know, for, for most people, yeah. it's about something you wear to keep. Because as you say, if you don't, you get arrested and also you're going to be very cold. 
So there's like this, all these very basic reasons for wearing clothes. And when it doesn't fit into their box, then they get confused. And I think you still, yeah. you do get it sometimes in discussion of design as well. You know, you do sometimes get it when people will talk about the beauty of something, but then kind of, but actually it doesn't work, you know. Yeah. You get it sometimes people talking about modernist houses, you know, for instance, modernist houses built in the in the UK don't work the way they work in the south of France because it's a different climate. And, you know, I actually I see fashion in that kind of context. I think it's quite interesting right. when you slot it into that context, because sometimes it gets challenged in a way that lots of pieces of design get challenged. And I think it's, it's those kind of different points of view on what makes good design. What about yourself then? Because look, you know, you're wearing a black t-shirt or yeah. possibly yeah. a black long-sleeved t-shirt. I can't see your sleeves. And I see you posting a lot of things about like buying very elaborate pieces. They're extremely, uh, you know, fashion oriented yeah. stuff. And sometimes they're extremely, you know, extremely women's wear. Or, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like clearly sort of like a dress or something. Yes. And here yes. you are wearing, you know, a t-shirt. Yeah. So what's your personal relationship to fashion then? What's the sort of a day-to-day Alex Fury outfits? This is this is what I wear every day. Which is I you know, I will sometimes wear something slightly more exciting. I should have worn something more exciting. I know that I will be challenged. You know, on the one hand, a lot of people have been like, why do you wear this when you go to fashion shows, for instance? Because I wear this when I go to a show. And my thing of that is it's, it's not about me. You're not supposed to be looking at me. You shouldn't care what I'm wearing. I will wear a good coat because it's something kind of easy, simple that I can put on. But then also in terms of the clothes that I buy, a lot of the time I, I buy things to collect them. I buy things because I have an archive of clothes that I purchase for various reasons, mostly because they're things that I love. You know, there's a focus on stuff from the kind of 80s and 90s because they're things that I saw when I was a kid and always wanted. I have actual things that I saw and wanted to buy when I was kind of 13, 14. And now I have them, which is to me is very kind of precious and and very kind of powerful. But I also have them because they're an amazing piece of design. You know, I, I think it's a little bit like you could have an incredibly expensive chair that you never sit in. Because it's beautiful and potentially because it's so expensive, you can't sit in it. And, you know, I have a Sterling Ruby ashtray. I don't use it as an ashtray. You know, it's an art piece. I have a Sterling Ruby ceramic. I'm not going to use it the way I would use, a, a you know, a, a bowl from an M&S. I have, I probably have 3,000 garments. Might be more if we include accessories and stuff. And people have said to me, what dress would you save? And, you know, and I don't, I you know, if you had to save a piece, what would you save? And I'm like, th- I would save, I have a dress by Galliano from autumn, winter, 1995. It's colloquially called the seamless dress. It's black and white with a carnation worked into it. All the seams are hidden in this carnation. So there's no side seams. It's all hidden in this flower that spirals around the dress. It was worn by Carla Bruni. And it's the first Galliano piece I remember seeing. I saw a picture of it on the catwalk in an old issue of Marie Claire from 1995. And I remember just not kind of understanding because this was when John was doing shows. You know, that show was Carla Bruni in this dress stood on a rooftop and it was snowing. And that was the show. The show was they built rooftops and they trucked in all this fake snow and it snowed in the middle of the show. 
and everyone walked through a wardrobe to get into this kind of Narnia to watch this fashion show. Yeah. And as a kind of 11-year-old, I was looking at this image and I just couldn't understand what this was in that kind of context. And I always say that picture was kind of the curiosity about that and how beautiful it was, and it still is. That was kind of the thing that made me want to work in fashion. It was the thing that kind of sparked the interest. It's the thing that made me want to be kind of part of this world. So the fact I now have one of those dresses, and they made six, there are six of those dresses in the world. The fact I have one of those six dresses is extraordinary. Like, I never thought... I would, even now when I'm collecting things, I just never thought one of them would be available. And occasionally I find things and I'm like, I just can't believe this exists. I can't believe this was, you know, I've seen a picture of it. I cannot believe more than one of these was ever made. You know, I have other ones where, especially that kind of John stuff from the 90s, you know, I have stuff where they made 20 of a jacket. I've got stuff where they didn't make any. That The one I have is the one that was in the show and it was never commercially produced. So to have those kind of things, they're magical as talismans, but also the way they are made is extraordinary. And that's what I kind of think is the mark of good fashion is you have an image and the image is amazing. And then you get hold of the garment and it's a completely kind of different experience. And it's just as magical, but in a different way. Designers have even talked to me about that's what they want to do with their clothes because so many people see so many images today how how do you not get tired of fashion? How Going back to your first question, how do you not get bored of fashion when we're so used to these garments? And in, in a way, it's going back to the actual piece itself being something kind of incredible and something that only if you own it or if you wear it, you know, you experience it in a different way. Because I can't obviously do not and cannot wear that dress, but wearing it would be a different experience as well. Me turning it inside out is incredible, but I know it's going to feel different if you're wearing it because it's like a T-shirt. It's absolutely nothing. Yeah. There's no construction to it whatsoever. There's, it's this slip of a thing, which is incredibly complicatedly made, but it's going to feel a very certain way when you put it on. And I think that experience of fashion, it's almost kind of four dimensions because the fourth dimension is what it feels like when it's on you, when you're inside something. And, you know, and I do wear certain things and you can feel the kind of, you know, the weight of a coat covered in fringe or the way a belt internally holds against you and how, you know, even something very big, how your body moves in that space. That's something people have talked about with Balenciaga's clothes. The fact that there's this kind of pocket of air between your body and the garment in Cristobal Balenciaga's creations. Mm. And that's something that's very kind of specific to fashion, actually, because you don't really say, oh, what does it feel like when you're inside a house? Because it doesn't have that intimacy that fashion has. And that's also, I think, why people, you know, when Marilyn Monroe's dress comes up for auction, there is this sense that there's kind of a, you know, there's a trace of a human being in a garment. So it really is, for me, there's something very, very specific about fashion. It's all these different kind of aims and disciplines combined and then ultimately it's kind of about humanity and that is something that's kind of absolutely unique to it I think. And perhaps that's actually a good way of tying it all up but I wonder because you know we talked about like that period in time and, and those designers and it's very much about 
you know, the past. And you've also, you know, we talked about the importance of history. Yes. Not only for yes. you, but for, for fashion in general. But so, you know, let's look at right now. I mean, if you compare that to the state of, of, of fashion today, and also which kind of like ties up with the sort of the entire theme of, of this podcast series. But, you know, how do you stay curious, you know, mm. today? Yeah. Uh, what about like 2021 fascinates you? draws you in you know keeps you keeps you curious about fashion i mean we're going through a very interesting point in history and i think anything produced at a point like this is interesting fashion art literature journalism you know this is such a specific point in time that everything produced now is fascinating is newsworthy because everyone is experiencing a very kind of unique circumstance it's like when you look at things that were produced during the wars you know and then also subsequently it's going to be really interesting to look at what happened before and what happened after and how things have shifted but you know i'm very aware someone once said to me that i was kind of a a, a nostalgist and that i needed to stop living in the past i think it was like a, an online comment or something it's always struck with me because i I don't want to be a nostalgist. I don't want to be someone who is like, well, it was so much better back in the 90s because I don't believe that. I think in the 90s, it was a magical time, but it was very much of that time as well. And that was what was interesting. I think, you know, again, I've talked about this recently. I remember living through it and and the kind of the genuine fear that people had about the millennium and about the millennium bug and about the idea that the whole world might come crashing down. And it's really interesting to contrast that with people doing these kind of hysterical revivals of history and crashing everything together. And, you know, so it's, it's like, you know, Henry VIII meets kind of 18th century and it just all colliding into this unreal telescoping of history. And it really reflects this kind of uncertainty about the future. And also, you know, all of these questions about, you know, what does humanity mean at this point? What does masculinity mean? What does femininity mean? And we're asking those kind of questions again today. And I think, you know, there's also, you know, how do we mediate our relationships between technology? How does that impact how we view one another, how we view ourselves? So all of that kind of thing is interesting. But I'm, you know, I'm also thinking kind of perpetually, I'm looking at stuff and thinking in 10 years, in 20 years, what am I going to be thinking? Oh God, I really wish I'd got that. I really wish I had that. That really sums up what is going on right now. And that's always very difficult. But, you know, I kick myself now for not buying certain things kind of 20 years ago, for not investing the time and the money in buying certain things because they're really significant representations of, of a particular moment. So I think, you know, if you're looking at kind of what people are doing now, you know, kind of what Rick Owens does really jumps out at me as kind of being very much a reflection of the time, of his own experience, his own views of the time, but also kind of a more general reflection of the moment. There are lots of new designers whose work, I think, is, you know, are making very kind of significant contributions. When you look at Pia Moss or Telfar, what they're proposing is a very kind of specific view of American fashion, which is also interesting because I think for a long time, American fashion has been really dismissed as, as being kind of sportswear, being very simple, but there's a much more complicated and nuanced view of the experience of a person of color within American society and American fashion. 
And then also you can look at something like what Mutia Prada and Raf Simmons are doing together because that creative combination is really exceptional. I did love the Balenciaga-Gucci collaboration because of this clashing of ideas. And also, what does that say about today, that these two kind of behemoths are collaborating in this mm. way that is very easily read, but at the same time, it's not a sweatshirt with two logos based on it. They're, you know, they're quite hardcore looks, but it's very much these two aesthetics crashing together. I don't know if I'm really answering your question there, but, that, you know, mm. it's, I think... What I'm really interested in at any particular moment is fashion that really represents the time in which it's created. And that's, I've actually been looking through the different pieces that I have and trying to figure out what the hell links them all together because they're quite weird and quite varied. And there's a lot from specific designers, but then how do you link this designer with that designer? And I think that, you know, there is this idea of kind of I'm drawn to quite extreme things. And I think I'm drawn to extreme things as representative of extreme times. And I think at the moment, we're definitely living through an extreme time. Mm. And designers are coming up with extreme things. I don't think you can say, it doesn't feel like it's a shy and retiring moment. I think maybe it has been a little bit. I think last year, perhaps, last season perhaps, was, was quite a shy season because people didn't really know what direction we were going in. People didn't know if they should be modest. People didn't know if the businesses would survive. Um, yeah. And the, the really interesting thing now is it's either the world's going to end or the world's not going to end and there's going to be a massive party. And that seems to be the two kind of approaches designers are taking to where we are right now. It's either mm. the end of everything or the party to end all others. Well, let's hope it's the party. I, yeah, fingers crossed. That's what I'm... Those are the clothes I'm buying, the party clothes. So that, you know, that's what I'm hoping for. Okay, well, look, I think having chosen the party over the massive explosion, let's... Uh, <laughs> it's, an easy, it's an easy choice, like party over apocalypse. And also it's a good way of, of, of tying up the conversation and uh, thanking you for coming on to the podcast and talking to us. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Alex. Bye. Bye. In London, cab drivers have to take a test called the Knowledge, where they learn 25,000 streets and routes throughout the city. I know it's insane. But if there was a similar kind of test for fashion writers, only a handful would stand a chance. And Alex Fury is definitely one of them. At a time and place where everyone has an opinion and through social media, a platform to shout them, it's that knowledge, that understanding of the history of fashion that makes Alex stand out. We all have a point of view. Academically backing it up is often an entirely different matter though. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.